You may be seated. <clears throat> this passage that we just read a moment ago from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, like I said, is a passage about fellowship. And that's one of the things that we need to focus on in the church. We've been working our way through a sermon series that has looked at the church, who we are, who we are supposed to be, what we are supposed to do, what we are supposed to look like. We've called this sermon series The Bride of Christ, and we've looked at uh, a number of different things. We looked at uh, core values now that we've kind of focused our attention on. Last week we looked at the core values of teaching and learning. This week we look at the idea of fellowship. Uh, the, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It means a, a partnership or a sharing in something. And that is to be a part of what we are as the church for sure. We talk sometimes about fellowship hour, you know, where we, where we have coffee and a donut maybe. And in that time, we certainly have fellowship, but fellowship is more than just coffee and a donut. If we look to the Bible, we see in uh, Acts 2, for instance, where we looked a couple weeks ago, it talked about the fellowship that they shared with one another was a sharing, not just of coffee and a donut, but of, of all the things that they had, actually. They shared their possessions and, and their finances, and, and really all of life was shared together with one another. And that is the kind of fellowship that we're talking about. It's a cooperation of effort, uh, getting on the same page with one another, a unity of purpose. That's what we're talking about today. Purpose is something that we have to be aware of. We have, we have purpose statements or, or what we might call a vision statement. Our vision statement we looked at in this series, we looked at this idea of how we exist to know and to worship and to serve the triune God. To know, to worship, and to serve. That's, that's our vision. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. We are to be pursuing that purpose together with one another. And throughout Scripture, there's many purpose statements. You know, when the authors of Scripture wrote down the words of Scripture, they often included purpose statements in those books. For instance, in the book of Luke, if we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 3, we'll see that Luke says, It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You see, he, he says his purpose here is to write an orderly account. He wants to write a history that details the facts in an orderly manner. That's what Luke is trying to accomplish in writing the book of Luke, as well as the book of Acts, which is kind of a volume two to the gospel of Luke. The Apostle John also, if we read John's gospel, he doesn't do it at the beginning, he does it at the end of his gospel. He says in John 20, verse 31, but these things are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He says, that's why I'm writing this. It's not just an orderly account. I have a purpose here, I have an intention, I have a goal and that goal is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is his purpose statement. That same Apostle John wrote this passage we look at today. 
in his first epistle. And he gives us, in chapter 1, verse 3, a purpose statement. He says, that which we have seen and have heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. His goal in writing this is that the recipients might have fellowship with him, that they might share in things, that it might produce fellowship. And I, I don't think he's just talking about donut fellowship. He's talking about true fellowship. And we see in this passage that true fellowship is fellowship that is grounded in the truth. True fellowship welcomes others to be a part. True fellowship emanates from God. And true fellowship results in joy. Let's take a look at the passage and see where I get these ideas from. First of all, true fellowship is grounded in the truth. uh, And it's grounded in truth that is eternal. Pontius Pilate infamously asked the question, what is truth? And we often hear similar questions these days. There are many who would say we can determine our own truth these days. We can choose whatever truth we want to believe that you can have your truth and that's great for you. Meanwhile, I'm going to have my truth that works for me and we can all have our varying truths that we choose to believe and let's just get along. But that's not the kind of truth that we're talking about here. We're talking about absolute truth, truth that is eternal, that's not just determined by somebody's whim or wish, but truth that always was truth. It says right here in verse 1, that which was from the beginning. It is eternal. John is using these words here. They're familiar words to us as we look in the Bible. Of course, the very first words of the Bible in the book of Genesis are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John has borrowed these words before. For in his gospel, the very first words of the gospel of John are, in the beginning was the word. He tells us that the word was with God and the word was God. He's saying this term, the word, this elementary principle, this foundational truth, this word who is Jesus. And he's saying that he is the truth. John goes on to say that actually in quoting Jesus in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is truth. He's not a truth that we decide upon. He is truth and has for all of eternity been truth. We have no say in the matter. It's not our decision. It is his essence. It is who he is. No matter what we happen to believe. He is the truth. He has always been the truth. And true fellowship is grounded in him. And this truth that Jesus is not only spans back before all time, it has entered into time and history in such a way that he has been witnessed. He has been observed. And that is what 
John says next, he speaks of this truth which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He is saying there are real events involved here. This is not just abstract theory we're talking about. This is not just some idea that we have, but this is something that actually happened in history. That's one of the key differences between Christianity and and any other religion that has ever come along. You see, most of the world's religions, you could take away historical happenings. You could remove perhaps the prophet of that religion and still have the substance of the religion. But if you do that with Christianity, if you take out Jesus, you lose Christianity. You see, because he doesn't just bring a message. He is the message. His, His life, his actions, the things that he actually did and accomplished are the message of the Bible. And so it is that the dependability of Christianity hinges upon its veracity, upon its truth, upon its actually having occurred. I remember back when I was in college, I was in a a small group Bible study with with some other guys, and, and the leader of this group asked us one day, he said, what what would you guys think if, if we were able to prove and to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus never rose from the dead? I mean, I don't know. Obviously, this didn't happen. And obviously, there's, I don't know how we could prove this. But he said, what if we were able to prove that? If we were able to know for sure, absolutely, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, would you still have faith? Would you still be Christians? Well, we all kind of looked at each other nervously. You know, we wanted to get this one right because it's kind of a tricky question. And, and I remember those of us who actually did speak up eventually kind of headstrong said, well, yes, yes, we'd still believe because we knew our, our faith couldn't be shaken by anything, not even this idea that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But he asked us, well, well, what would your faith be in then? You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what, what are you believing in? What are you trusting in? Where is your faith grounded, if not in the fact of his resurrection? You see, because if he didn't rise from the dead, then the message of the Bible is a farce. The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's pointless. It has no meaning. And we are, Paul says, if that is the case, among all men, most to be pitied. You see, if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead then let's chuck Christianity. It's a waste of time. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But you see, it did happen. Jesus did rise from the dead. And so we have a foundation for this. Because Christianity is not just just a matter of teaching you how to be a better person. And Christianity is not just a matter of teaching you how to have your best life now. Christianity is teaching you that you are sinful, broken, fallen, and separated from God. 
You are at enmity with God and by nature children of his wrath. And into this condition came Jesus. And he died for you. And he rose again from the dead in order that you might have new life in him. That is the message of Christianity. That is the truth behind Christianity. And this is what John says, is that which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. You see, he is saying, we actually saw this. We actually heard Jesus speaking to us. We actually reached out and touched him with our hands. We sat down on the beach and shared a meal with him that he cooked with his very hands. He has risen from the dead, and that is the foundation of all that we have. And therefore, this is that to which we testify and proclaim to you. And true fellowship is grounded in this truth. Secondly, true fellowship welcomes others to be a part. We could say true fellowship is shared with others. It's shared with others in one sense through, through proclamation. Right? Verse 3 says, it's that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You might hear somebody talk about sharing the gospel or sharing their faith. And what we're talking about is, is a message is proclaimed. The truth of the gospel is shared with others. And so true fellowship is shared with others in that sense. It is proclaimed to others and, and invites others to be a part of it. It is also shared, though, in the sense that it is a shared experience. It is not something, fellowship is not something we can have by ourselves, right? You can't just say, oh, I think I'm going to go have some fellowship and go off by yourself and have fellowship. No, it's something that is shared with others. It is an experience that we must have with others, and that's what he wants. That's the reason this message is proclaimed in verse 3. says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You see, that's his goal. He, he wants to bring that about. He wants to bring about fellowship between them. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a thing that you, you can't possibly understand until you're in the midst of it. I remember when... We had only Jack, and Caroline wasn't born yet. And I can remember the idea of having a second child seemed just so impossible because, because how could I possibly love this second hypothetical child as much as I loved that first child? It, it was unimaginable. I couldn't imagine loving the second child as much as I did. But, but as soon as that second child became a reality, all of a sudden there was more love there to share. <laughs> You know, all, all this love, I, I didn't need to decrease the love that I poured out toward the one to have just as much to pour out toward the second. And, and you can tell people that beforehand, but they can't understand it. They can't understand it until they're in that situation. You just can't understand the truth of that until you're in the midst of it. And so it is with true fellowship. You, you can't understand what it is actually like, the benefits of it, and, and the joys and the, the idea behind fellowship just in an academic exercise. You know, I could stand up here and tell you everything that is true about fellowship 
If you've never experienced fellowship, you can't say that you are an expert in fellowship or that you understand fellowship. True fellowship needs to be experienced. It's not just an idea. It's something that we need to experience ourselves and that we need to share with others so that they might experience it. And I'll be the first to admit this. Sadly, I am not as good as I would like to be at sharing fellowship with others, at encouraging others into fellowship. I wish I did a better job at this. I wish that, that it was more second nature to me to just, just drop everything else and want to be with other people and to involve other people and incorporate other people, to, to invite them into my home, to spend time with them, to go do things with them, to, to help them out. And to, I wish that was just second nature to me, but it, it's not. You see, because I'm a sinner and I'm selfish and I am self-centered, I am focused inwardly, and I want what I want for me more than I want those things for other people. You see, if the whole experience of fellowship was totally up to me, frankly, I'd, I'd be in a world of hurt because I wouldn't be able to bring it about. But fortunately, fellowship is not all about what I create on my own. Because true fellowship emanates from God. We see in verse 3, the second half of it, he says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just some man-made strategy for church life. It's not just some plan that John has come up with or that somebody else has come up with subsequently or that I came up with, or you came up with. No, the, the idea is an idea that comes from God. You see, the church is not just a club. I, I fear sometimes we kind of think of it in that way, like it's a, a club or some kind of service organization, and that's not to say clubs or service organizations are bad things. No, they can be wonderful things. See, and you can, you can have a, a shared experience with other people and you can accomplish many great things through clubs and service organizations, but, but they are qualitatively different than the church. Because, because the church is the means that, that God has orchestrated by which, by which we are to relate to him. You see, we're not created to just relate to God abstractly on our own but rather within the context of a body of a church of a fellowship you see we are all members of one body we we as americans are are prone to think in terms of individuality right that that's kind of our default position i want to do this this way and that way and and i want to accomplish something and if nobody else is involved that's fine i'll just get it done but you see, we can't do that because God doesn't offer that as the means by which we are to know him. He, he invites us into a unity with other believers, whereas we would say, don't tell me what to do. Who are you to tell me that it has to be this way? I'll do it myself. We want to be like Frank Sinatra, right? Singing, I did it my way. 
But God does not offer us the opportunity to do it our way. He says, no, my way is the way of the church, being members of a body, members of a fellowship. The church father, Cyprian of Carthage, famously said, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Unless we are are quick to... uh, to write that off as just some early Catholic teaching that we reject with the Reformation. Uh, I, I point to the words of John Calvin, the very first words of the fourth book of his Institutes of the Christian Religion are this. I shall start then with the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help in ministry as long as they are infants, and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith, so that for those to whom God is Father, the church may also be mother. And this was so not only under the law, but also after Christ's coming, as Paul testifies when he teaches that we are the children of the new and heavenly Jerusalem in Galatians 4.26. You see, this relationship is one that we are not meant to go about it alone. We are to be part of this great fellowship. And this fellowship is actually modeled after the relationship that Christ himself had with the Father for all of eternity. In John 17, we have what's called the high priestly prayer. And during the Wednesday nights of Lent, we'll actually be looking at this passage of Scripture, preaching through it. And uh, a, a number of weeks back, we actually... Uh, preach the very first part of it as kind of an intro to that. But we see in this passage, Jesus says in praying to the Father about not only the apostles that are there before him at that time, but also all those who will believe in their words. That means you and me and every other Christian who has ever lived. Jesus says these words. I ask that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. He goes on, that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one. You see, that's the idea that lies behind it. Jesus wants the church to experience this fellowship, this common union with one another so that we might have as close a relationship with each other as Jesus has with the Father. That's pretty radical. Remember, he had existed in perfect union with the Father for all of eternity. And he walked his entire life in perfect fellowship with the Father, unhindered by sin. And so it is that we'll gather around tables Wednesday night... (laughs) just as Jesus gathered around tables with his disciples, shared in meals. We'll worship together Wednesday night to bring glory to this God who creates this union, who creates this fellowship. And the same with fellowship hour, right after worship here in just a few minutes, we'll gather around tables. We'll share donuts and coffee. We'll share stories about our day chat about the weather and the ball game and politics and the economy and such. 
But may our conversations go deeper than that. Let them go deep into our joys and into our concerns, into the cares that really burden us, that we might share those with one another, that we might pray for one another, that we might support one another, and that our fellowship might be strengthened, and that our joy may be enhanced. That's why he writes these things, he says in verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. Joy isn't just happiness. It's not just meaning that everything will be easy and good and we won't have any problems. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. You see, it doesn't mean that all the problems will go away, but rather that knowing what we know, that even though we are sinners... Christ died for us. Even though we would rebel against him, he still pursues us. Even though we continue down a wayward path, he still pursues us. Knowing this, knowing that there is nothing that could separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. We can endure whatever trials we face. We can endure whatever sufferings might come our way. For we know that we are God's and he is ours. So it is that this joy that we have is not something that we conjure up. It's not something that we bring about, but rather... As Romans 15, 13 tells us, it is something that God fills us with. It comes from him. It is a fruit of the Spirit, he tells us in Galatians 5. And one of the ways that he brings about this joy is through fellowship, through encouraging one another in these relationships. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete, John says. No, he doesn't say that. He says, so that our joy may be complete. It's kind of odd, isn't it? You kind of expect him to say, so that your joy would be complete. That's what we think he should be saying there. He's saying, we we share this, we bring you into fellowship, we invite you in, because we know what would be good for you. We know what would be best for you. We know that you will have joy if only you join our fellowship. No, he says, we will have joy. If you join our fellowship. Because we will have the pleasure of seeing God work in your life. We will have the pleasure of of being built up in the faith through our fellowship with you. Not just me. And not just one another. But all of us. And no longer will it be me and you. No longer will it be us and them but rather in Christ Jesus, we will be one. We will share this common union and and it won't make any difference what backgrounds we have that are different. We might all come from different backgrounds when it comes to interests or political affiliations different jobs, different races, different demographics. 
It really doesn't matter. All of these things might be different, but we in Christ Jesus can be made into one. What a beautiful thing that is. What a beautiful thing that is that we can gather around the cross and worship together in fellowship. It's my prayer that we could be a church that experiences true fellowship. Fellowship that is grounded in the truth. Fellowship that welcomes others to be a part. Fellowship that emanates from God. And fellowship that results in joy. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are the God who brings about fellowship. What a blessing that is. We pray that you would bring it about in our church. Help us to seek you diligently to see you as you truly are and to be transformed thereby into your likeness. And as we are transformed into your likeness, surely one part of that will be the fellowship that we will experience with one another as fellow members of one body, your body. May it be true of us for our good and for your glory. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Please rise with me now and sing our closing hymn, hymn number 429.